This episode of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast is supported by Thomson Reuters One Source Global Trade, providing software and solutions to boost efficiency, reduce costs, manage risk, and comply with import and export regulations. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it offers to clients. But now, on to the podcast. Forced labor in the supply chain is coming under intense scrutiny by regulators. Companies must act now to eliminate it. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. China's treatment of ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang province has shown a glaring spotlight on the continued presence of forced labor in global supply chains. In response, regulators in the U.S. and elsewhere are tightening up on their strictures against the use of forced labor, and companies that fail to comply can expect to face stiff penalties, high costs, and even criminal prosecution in some cases. On this episode, we delve into the definition of modern-day forced labor and discuss what companies must do to ensure that their products are free of that particular scourge in China and wherever else it might occur. My guest is Suzanne Offerman, Senior Product Manager of Outbound Product Marketing for One Source Global Trade with Thomson Reuters. Here's our conversation. Suzanne Offerman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. It's nice to be here. Suzanne, what is your definition in this age of the term forced labor? Under the U.S. law, as you know, merchandise that's produced, harvested, mined, manufactured, whether it's whole or even a component of it, by forced labor is prohibited. Right? Can't enter it into the country. And what forced labor means is work that's performed involuntarily, under the threat of penalty, such as through the use of violence, or it could be a more subtle means, like they remove your, they take away your papers so that you can't move around, or they may not pay you the proper wage. They may make you work all hours and not pay overtime. They may threaten your family. Things like that is what the definition is of forced labor. A naive or hopeful individual might ask, really, in this day and age, is this happening? Obviously, the answer is yes. How did we get to this point where it is a problem today still? It is still a problem, and it's a worldwide issue, believe it or not. Although we always think of this in today's terms typically happening in the Uyghur region of China, there are actually regulatory efforts globally to address it because it can happen anywhere. And as much business that we do with China, there are many countries out there that have laws to prevent it. So, for example, we always focus on U.S. law from a U.S. perspective, and we have a new law out there that is one of the strictest of its kind. But we have other countries, Canada, Switzerland, U.K., Germany, Netherlands, 
France, Japan, Australia. There are a lot of countries out there that have these laws on the book to prevent this from happening. The problem is that from the perspective of the Chinese, they don't view this as forced labor. Uh, they view it in, in other ways. And so, therefore, you have some of these camps that have been set up in the Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang in China, and that's where the biggest problem seems to be right now. I felt that over the years there's been a certain visibility to the subject of forced labor and unfair working conditions generally. Do you think that some of us kind of took our eye off the ball when we all went into survival mode in the last couple of years because of the pandemic? Because we were so worried about that that maybe we were paying less attention attention to this issue? I have no doubt that that is a contributing factor because there weren't eyes on the ground. You can actually take a look at surveillance. I know the governments have, U.S. government has, and they have in Europe as well, where you look at this region and there'll be trees and so forth or flatland. Suddenly, there'll be a camp set up and then suddenly they have workers there and working. Then, Someone gets hold of it, knows about it, and then they shut it and then move on to the next area. So there's no mm-hmm. doubt that we weren't paying close enough attention. But there seems to have been a shift now. There's definitely a shift in how we perceive this and, and what the countries and companies are doing about it. There's been a heightened attention on this issue from investors, from customers, politicians, enforcement agencies both uh, governmental and non-governmental agencies that care about this issue. And I think that we've seen some of the start of this in terms of protecting worker rights when USMCA was passed, which has some of that stronger language in it. And in fact, just this week, I read that the governments of the United States, Canada, and Mexico have agreed to take that into account and make sure that forced labor is going to become a piece of that legislation and and that agreement. Interesting. When you say the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, that puts the issue of forced labor right at our doorstep. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, it's happening over in China, but we're also trying to head off the possibility of it being closer to home, aren't we, in some definition? Absolutely, we are. I think traditionally the United States dealt with forced labor with work with release orders, withhold release orders, where if there was a suspicion of it, they would hold your goods. You could show that they were not made with forced labor and then take it from there. The difference, however, today is the new law, so the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which was passed December of last year. Enforcement began just last month, just three weeks ago. The difference is that it includes a presumptive rebuttal clause, and that's making it much more challenging for companies and extremely costly if they're not compliant to comply. And even though there have been numerous laws and regulations that were on the books to address these modern slavery risks, they've been on the books in the U.S. since 1930, it's this new law. And coupled with all this heightened attention from companies and customers, that I think has really put our eye back on the ball to prevent this from happening. Just to be clear, those new regulations came into force in June. Tell me more about this concept of rebuttable presumption, because it sounds like we're talking about you're guilty until proven innocent. What is that all about? You were right. Beginning June 21st, 2022, that is when enforcement began. And basically what it means is that if Customs and Border Protection determines that any part of an imported goods supply chain 
has any ties whatsoever to the Xinjiang region in China, the import is prohibited. So goods do not have to have a country of export of China. They can originate from any country and simply have inputs from this region. And it applies to any commodity, whether it's a finished good, part, component, raw material, <laughs> etc. It doesn't have to be a finished good. And although there are some commodities that are at higher risk, like cotton, polysilicon, tomatoes, textiles, footwear, it can apply to any commodity. And what also makes it difficult is that it applies to any tier of a supplier within your supply chain. So it used to be that if you knew your tier one suppliers, that was enough, right? You did your due diligence and you knew that they were good companies doing the right thing and you didn't have to do much more. But now, because it applies to any tier within your supply chain, you need to dig deeper. So, for example, if you purchase from ABC Company and they in turn have four sub-suppliers, if any of those sub-suppliers have ties to Xinjiang, then it's prohibited. To prove otherwise or to rebut this, customs will require clear and convincing evidence to release the goods. It's a much higher bar, much higher standard than the withhold release orders called WROs that we were used to seeing. Okay, you're saying this at a time when a lot of supply chains shockingly say that they barely have visibility of their Tier 1 suppliers, let alone Tier 2 and Tier 3 and Tier 4. So it sounds like a lot of companies are not prepared to adhere to these regulations, even though they are now in effect. I do think that could be the case. We talk to customers all the time who are asking about, what should I do? I'm sure they're talking internally and externally to get in line. So there are a few things, I guess, that a company could do to avoid this, right? There are certain steps that are taken if customs suspects forced labor, right? They're not going to let the goods in. And there are certain steps that there's a detention notice, the importer could export the goods, they can request an exception, provide evidence, they have a certain amount of days, they may be able to protest this, bring it to court. But at the end of the day, this is all extremely difficult and expensive. And so ideally, you want your company to avoid that at all. And so there are some mitigation strategies that a company can take to avoid this. One of the things is sort of very basic, and I, I would hope that most companies are doing this now, although I, I certainly don't want it to assume, is that they should be doing screening. So, like, the first line of defense is to do your denied party, restricted party screening early and often, and it, mm. before you start doing business with a company and at every stage of, of the transaction. There's also new entity lists that talk specifically about what's going on in the Weezer region or Weezer people for that law, and that entity list is included as well. But it goes beyond that because sometimes there might not be an exact theme on it, but it falls under a different list, and so you still need to be aware that they're tied to that region. I think the second piece, once you've gotten your screening underway, is to do vendor screening. And so what I mean by this is you need to assess your risk of each of tier supplier at all levels so that you avoid going into business with the wrong person. So, for example, you would send something like questionnaires out, let's say, start with your tier one suppliers, have them fill it out. 
take a look. You can get scoring. Some companies do this manually, but there are tools out there as well that can help do that. If you don't have personnel to do it, if you're short-staffed or resource-constrained, there are tools out there that can help. They give scoring, and then based on those scoring, that's when you can make a decision about, okay, which supplier do I need to dig a little deeper in? Maybe that's the one that I need to get somebody to go look. That's the one I need to start asking for information beyond just what's on the the questionnaire. And then the other piece that uh, the government has said, besides this due diligence, right? So I would say the screening and risk assessment is all falls under the due diligence portion Mm -hmm. is the tracing. So they've also asked, so let's say you get to that point, can you trace, for example, your tomato sauce back down to the tomato seed? Can you tell them at every stage along your supply chain where that came from? It's a tremendous burden. And I do think it's going to have repercussions on how we do business in China and really about where we're going to start making goods in the future. It's it's almost like a complete shift of policy. Well, it doesn't come out of nowhere because we've had concerns before this about things like minerals being mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and other countries where there were perceived to be maybe not forced labor situations, but unfair labor situations that required some kind of supplier code of conduct to be put into place to monitor this. So you could argue, I guess, that companies aren't completely starting from scratch on on this because it's been a concern for a while, right? I think you're correct about that. It has been concerned for a while. And certainly, as I mentioned, you should have some of these pieces in place. I think Mm -hmm. the biggest difference is the level of information that the customs wants now or customs needs to show and how deep in your supply chain you need to go. So supply chains, I'm sure you know, right, are, can be extremely long. And if you think about it, if you have a product where you're getting components and parts from all different parts of the world, bringing them together, you're getting parts made in Malaysia and some from Taiwan, and then you're bringing them to China, and in China you're making it into a subcomponent, and then maybe from China you're then shipping it to Mexico, and then in Mexico they're making it to finished good, then goes into the United States from a U.S. importer. Can you trace every step of that? So the act is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. It seems to apply very specifically to what's going on in Xinjiang province. Does it also apply to forced labor situations anywhere else? Is customs also looking for that as well? Or is this very specifically what's going on in China? It depends on which law. So obviously the law that we're talking about in detail today where you can get a detention notice and a rebuttable presumption, that is focused um, solely on China and the from the Uyghur law. But forced labor can happen anywhere. And we had, there are actually some withhold release orders around the globe that the U.S. and other countries care about. So this really is a global issue. It is, it's not simply limited to China, although clearly the biggest focus right now is on China, and it's certainly the most difficult law with which to comply. So what are the risks and penalties for noncompliance? They can be great. Your goods will not be allowed to enter the U.S. So they'll be stopped at the first port of arrival. And then the customs has five days following that on which the merchandise is presented for examination. At that point, they'll decide whether to release it or detain. If it's detained, they'll submit a detention notice that's issued to the importer. The importer then only has 30 days to respond, and that is an extremely short period of time. 
So they could export the goods, but they cannot export the goods to Canada or Mexico, which is a huge caveat in the export rule. They can request exception. Exceptions are used for inputs where there is a link to the Xinjiang region, but the importer can prove that there was no forced labor in the supply chain. Difficult burden, but you, theoretically you should be able to do that um, if it's true. And they can provide evidence that the goods have no ties at all to the Xinjiang region and that goods can be released. Now, goods are outside the scope of the law. It's not an exception. You're more that you're providing the evidence. If it's clear and convincing evidence is not provided by the importer within 30 days, then the goods will be deemed in violation and they're excluded. Now, the importer can protest this, right? There's a protest methodology and importers, I think, are used to using this, although this is a new type of protest, if you will. If customs denies the protest, then the importer can take the issue to the U.S. Court of International Trade and argue, and presumably it could go up to the Court of Appeals to the Federal Circuit, etc. But that is timely and very expensive. And so I think that importers probably would have to weigh what's the value of the goods that are detained and if I lose them versus how much am I going to be spending in legal fees and et cetera in, in trying to fight this. And then goods that are determined or the customs says violate the new law, they also may be subject to seizure and forfeiture. And so those cases would be referred to the fines, penalties, and forfeiture office, in which case then they're on top of the fact that you lose the goods, right, because you can't get them into the country. Then you also are paying penalties on top. Those, though, I think are going to be, they're limited to situations when there's clear evidence that the importer was trying to evade or, or some kind of cover-up. So, for example, if a company purposely tries to make the goods within the Xinjiang region and imports it or exports it from there to another country and then brings it into the U.S. and then says that they're not really made in China, that's the situation, I think, where there'll be that deep penalty situation. Mm -hmm. You'll have to make that distinction between whether it was simply ignorance or actually proactive attempt to get around the law. That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's um, a mistake, like even if it's a mistake, the way the law is written, it doesn't matter because, again, it's that presumption, right? It's presumed to be made with forced labor, and so the burden is on the importer to demonstrate that it wasn't. Okay, so I would suspect that this isn't the last we'll hear from customs or any number of other regulatory agencies who are out to put a stop to forced labor. I wonder if there's some kind of a slippery slope going on here where we're going to see, number one, we're going to see uh, regulation from other countries in response to this or whether here in the United States we'll see even tougher regulations from either customs or other agencies. What can we expect in the future to come out of this whole issue? Well, you're right about that, Robert, because we know already that the Chinese have imposed counter laws that they know that they're, and that's actually making it extremely difficult for importers who want to do the right thing to get the information that they need to be able to prove to customs that their goods were not made with forced labor. Because many of the companies in China are literally not permitted to comply with our law. They're not allowed to give the information, or they might give it somewhat, but not fully. And it's causing a lot of headaches for these U.S. importers. So that already exists. I also can see some more supply chain disruption. I feel like this theme has been around now for, what, since the pandemic started? So yeah. two and a half years or so, where we've been talking about supply chain disruption. Because if you think about it, as customs gets ramped up to enforce this law, there's going to be more and more goods detained. 
And we know that there's certain industries where that's geared to happen. And although it could happen in a wide range of industries, we do know that there are some that are considered higher risk than others, such as automotive, manufacturing, retail, consumer packaged goods, electronics, cotton, apparel, footwear, etc. And so when, if those goods start getting detained, we know it's going to disrupt because that means it's just fewer goods getting into the country, like physical goods, fewer goods on the shelves, fewer goods in the store, etc. The other part of the disruption is that companies may start to move their production out of China into other regions and into other countries. And if that happens, that just takes time, right? It takes time to reset up a new factory. And also, it's not even just setting it up, but China has been doing these certain kinds of manufacturing very well for a very long time. And so for some of these other countries that might benefit from this law, right, because as countries look to move to other, they still have to get up to speed locally to have the skill set to be able to produce goods that are as good a quality as what is made in China. And so all of that leads to disruption and slowdowns of products making it to our shelves. And then finally, I think it could also raise the cost of some goods because, I guess for a couple of reasons, obviously there's been lots of talk currently about inflation. But if you have fewer goods, more demand, price goes up. It's a very simple concept and simple way to look at it. But it wouldn't surprise me if that starts to happen, particularly on some of these higher-risk industries that are out there as they're trying to move or as their goods start to get detained and they're proving that they haven't been made with forced labor. Suzanne, tell me about where Thomson Reuters is today in terms of the services and products you offer the marketplace, how you fit into the whole world of supply chain information and the like. Sure. Thomson Reuters has a suite of products called OneSource Global Trade, and they are made up of a suite of global trade management products. Among them are products that we call our risk bundle products, if you will. They're products that we think will help address this specific issue of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and help companies mitigate those risks. So there's denied party screening, which, of course, provides the proactive and ongoing screening, identify high-risk prohibitive parties um, to avoid importing any banned items and allow for remediation. Important to screen before you do business with any supplier. Then if you layer on top your risk assessments of your vendors, Uh, We have a product called Supply Chain Compliance that does that. It provides another step in in your due diligence, and it offers supplier-targeted assessments to gather specifics on their business practices and obtain proof source documents to ensure your compliance and be able to show that you're doing your due diligence. And then finally, after you have those couple of layers of due diligence, your screening and your risk assessments, once you start then digging in deeper, into what companies you need to do. We have TradeLand Analyzer, which is research sourcing options. It can help identify WRO in China and other countries for finished goods. And you can also find country threat comparisons in a chart. Suzanne Offerman, 
I want to thank you so much for bringing us up to date on the changes in regulations with regard to forced labor here and elsewhere and the penalties that might come with that, as well as telling us a little bit about Thomson Reuters today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate you having me. That was my conversation with Suzanne Offerman of Thomson Reuters One Source Global Trade talking about forced labor and supply chains. We thank Thomson Reuters for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.